The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. I'm always glad that you're here, but I'm particularly glad that you're here this morning because this is an important topic. Uh, Teaching every class is a challenge uh, for different reasons, but the reason this lesson is a challenge is because it's so profound and so important. Uh, There's some passages of Scripture that as a teacher, if I approach them, it just intimidates the heck out of me. Uh, John chapter 1. Romans chapter 8. They're just daunting. They're so deep historically and theologically and everything wrapped around them. Well, Genesis chapter 22, that story up on the screen is at the same level as a John 1 or a Romans 8 or something of that level, and you'll see why as we get to it. And so my uh, trepidation is I'm not up to it. So uh, that's my challenge this morning is to get up for it. So uh, we're going to cover a couple of different passages as we continue our study of the scarlet thread, which is the thread of the presence of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, prior to Bethlehem. And Abraham is so important. Last week was an hour-long introduction. So I appreciate those of you here last week. We talked about how critical Abraham is to understand our salvation, and that'll be a springboard for what we're going to talk about. Um, I've put on your outline uh, a couple of different things, but they start with an important premise that I've mentioned multiple times in here before. And the premise is when Scripture describes in the Old Testament God appearing, You've got to interpret that consistently with Scripture because all of Scripture makes clear that God the Father has never been seen. And I typed out a couple of verses and a couple of sentences to make it clear. And so if Scripture says God has not been seen in person, and if the Holy Spirit in Scripture is always a spirit and never seen, there's just one aspect of God left for who that could be. And that is the second person of the Trinity. That's Jesus before his incarnation. So in the life of Abraham, we see that second person of the Trinity more than any other person in the Old Testament. Moses is a little close, and we'll get to him in about a month. But Abraham is just amazing in terms of what God comes in person in his face and does to him. So we're going to talk through that. Now, I want to give you a little bit of a New Testament perspective by way of an introduction. Because last week I gave you Galatians chapter 3. And Galatians chapter 3 was our primary theme last week of why Abraham is so important to understand our salvation. Because Old Testament salvation, B.C. salvation, is exactly the same as A.D. salvation, ours. And our proof text, among others, is Galatians 3, 
that quotes the passage we looked at last week from Genesis 15 and talks about even so Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him or credited to him as righteousness. And then it gives the explanation for the rest of our salvation. So that is our initial springboard that he did something really important. And our connection between last week's lesson and this week's lesson is that verse is cross-referencing Genesis 22, which we're going to end on today. So it's very important, and that's the nexus between our old and our new. Now, the second verse I wanted to give you was Jesus' own words about Abraham. And the second verse I gave you on the outline was from the Gospel of John, John chapter 8. Now, to put this into context, John chapter 8 is a long discourse between Jesus and and the religious leader of his days. The Pharisees were trying to trap him. They were trying to ask him questions and trip him. And he got frustrated at him because they weren't coming to him with a seeker's heart. They were coming to him with an unbelieving heart, just trying to get him to say something that they could then use to try to kill him or kick him out of the city. He then gets upset at them, and in verse 56 says, what's up on the screen? Jesus says, your father, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. Very important point. And then it says, he saw it and was glad. Big, big question is, what did Abraham see when Jesus says, Abraham saw my day? Then the Jews respond. They say, you are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham. And then Jesus responds, very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up the stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. They wanted to kill him because when he says, I am, he is evoking the name of God. He's saying, Yahweh. And they wanted to kill him for what they thought was blasphemy. But the key thing is their response. Jesus comments on Abraham seeing his day. You notice Jesus doesn't come out and necessarily say, he saw me. But notice what the religious leaders do. They take the inference and they question him, what do you mean he saw you or you saw him? And his answer was, I'm even older than him. All right, so there's a lot of unspoken here. There's some inferences, but the big inference is he knows Abraham really, really well on a personal level. Now, I'm going to tie this together at the end of Genesis 22, but we had to start here because this is not just theologians piecing together what you might be able with 2020 hindsight to read into Genesis 16 through 22. This is Jesus himself saying, I knew Abraham. Abraham is in heaven because he saw me, the guy you're trying to kill, the guy you're not believing in, the guy you're trying to kick out. And he was saying to his audience, you claim he's your spiritual and, and physical father. So I'll tie that up in a minute. Now, let me jump into our text. I start with the first point, and uh, there's a massive typo, typo, or typo here. Uh, spoken, uh, supposed to be spoken. Uh, this is what happens when I type uh, close to midnight, so my apologies again. Uh, supposed to be spoken to by God, not spoken, and spoken to by God is simply putting last week and this week into context. I'm very, very careful not to read stuff into Scripture, and if I do, I'm the first guy to say I'm making an inference here. 
Last week, I taught it as an introduction and not Jesus himself interacting with Abraham because scripture doesn't say that. Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15 simply says Yahweh spoke. Does not say he appeared, although he probably did. That's an inference, but it just says he spoke. So I wrote down on your outline by the time of Genesis 18, God had already appeared, we think, on at least two occasions. Genesis 12, Genesis 17, Genesis 15, there's also a reference, and spoke to him, Genesis 12, 13, and 15. The reason why I said on your outline he probably appeared twice is because when he shows up in Genesis 18, Abraham recognizes him. There's not a quizzing, there's not a dude, who are you? He knows exactly who he's talking to. So that's a pretty good reference when we get to Genesis 18, that he knows who he's talking to, he's seen him before, he's talked to him before. But it is possible when the Abrahamic covenant was given that it could have been a disembodied voice. Scripture's just silent, we don't know. But that's why last week I broke it up as God talked to him, but I did not emphatically make the point that was an appearance because that's just an inference. In 18, actually 16, 18, and 22 of Genesis, it's explicit. He is there. He is in person. It's a physical manifestation, and I'm going to teach that to you as we go forward. Now, on the next part of your outline, I describe the meetings, where Scripture says it's more than just God talking. It is talking in a physical, corporeal manner where we're not exactly sure what he would have looked like, but it's clear from the phraseology of the Hebrew, it's a personal interaction. Now, I put on your outline for Genesis 16 a little bit of a prelude, and the prelude gets us to the issue of uh, Abraham's uh, first child, Ishmael. Ishmael is significant because in this situation, the second person of the Trinity is going to communicate not with Abraham, but with Hagar, the maid. And so if you've got your Bible, let's look at chapter 16 of the book of Genesis. And I'm going to work through this just to kind of give you some insight into what's going on here on our story of Hagar, who one artist put up here on our screen. And Ishmael is the son down there at her knee. All right. It says in Genesis 16 that Sarai, Abraham's wife, had no kids. She's got an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar, so she has this great idea. And she says to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And proving what an idiot he is, in verse 2, Abram agreed to what Sarai said. What an idiot. Uh, it says he's been living there for 10 years. That tells us he's 85 years old when this story takes place. So verse 4, he sleeps with her. She conceives. She knows she was pregnant. Then her and Sarah start to have some very, very, very serious conflict, and she essentially flees because she is hated. So Abraham has a child. Last week, I made a comment about he died in faith with the only begotten son, with one. My dad reminded me of a very important point, and that is that obviously Ishmael was alive. 
if you read the rest of Genesis, Abraham had other concubines and had other children, but they were all put out. They were not considered children of the promise. They were, con they were children of the flesh. And God said, that's not good. I'm going to separate them. Even though you're sinful, I'm still going to bless you, but that's all of his flesh. But our point with the angel of the Lord shows up in verse 7. On your outline, I put some initial observations of the angel of the Lord. If I were teaching this and doing an entire lesson on this guy that I'm going to introduce you to called the angel of the Lord, I would survey about 12 or 13 different passages of scripture that talk about the angel of the Lord. It is a unique phraseology. It's not just an angel. It's a specific phrase that appears over a dozen times called the angel of the Lord. That angel has got characteristics that I'm going to show you today and I'm going to show you in the weeks to come. If an angel does what that angel does, it's a blasphemous angel that deserves to be in the pit of hell with Satan. Unless that angel just happens to be God himself. If that angel's God himself, then that angel gets a free pass because that angel is going to prophesy, it's going to speak as God, it's going to bless as God. It's going to interact and receive worship from the person that he is interacting with. And theologians throughout the centuries have agreed the angel of the Lord is the second person of the Trinity. Now, you may be saying, whoa, Chris, you're blowing my mind. I've never heard that before, and that's fine. You're going to have about six lessons on this before we're done. It's going to get really good and really deep. So this is our introduction to this person. So I put some bullet points next to initial observations on the angel of the Lord, because as I read these, I'm going to point out what is divine about this being. It says in verse 7 of chapter 16 of Genesis, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. Basically, Sarah's kicked him out to die. Sarah said, this was a really bad idea. Hagar, you and the boy are out of here. Uh, and the angel of the Lord said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so that they will be too numerous to count. Okay, so our first bullet point is the angel of the Lord is divinely prophetic. Okay, divinely prophetic. Because when the angel says this, I will increase, it's saying, I got power and I'm going to give you more descendants than are too numerous to count. So you can see from point number one, if this isn't God, this is a, a, an angel that deserves to be with Satan in the pit of hell, okay? Because that's pretty blasphemous to do that unless you're God yourself. Now, as another little corollary here, what does that sound exactly like from last week? Promised Abraham. That's the Abrahamic covenant. That's exactly what he told Abraham. God's being consistent here. Verse number 11. The angel of the Lord also said with her, you are now with child, you will have a son, you shall name him Ishmael. Uh, sorry, she's pregnant here, she hadn't had him yet, obviously. You shall name him Ishmael uh, and the, uh, before the Lord has heard of your misery. And then it continues on with a description of him. The second point is that God hears. 
because Ishmael, the name in Hebrew means God hears. Ishma is hears, El at the end of that in English is God, so you invert it, it's God hears. And his name is showing what God has said, the boy shall be named. Uh, then verse 16, she gave this name to the Lord who had spoken to her. In the Hebrew, when it talks about Hagar, it says she gave this name to Yahweh who spoke to her. Don't know anything about Hagar's theology. Don't know anything about whether Hagar understood Genesis 3.15 or anything else that God had previously done, but she says Yahweh spoke to her. Okay? So on the proof text of who is the angel of the Lord in Genesis 16, it gets really clear really fast. And everything else we're going to discuss is just going to take this deeper and deeper and deeper. She says in verse 13, You are the God who sees me. For she said, Now I have seen the one who sees me. So this tells us it is a physical manifestation. It's not a spirit. It's not just an angel that she knows is there, but she doesn't know what it is. She says, I have seen God. And in verse 14, it says, that's why the well was called Bir Lehi Reoi, and it's still there between Kadesh and Bered. So, Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram, Abram, or Abram gave him the name Ishmael. That's a great little point at the end because it shows God never appeared to Abram at this time. But when Hagar came back and said, I saw God, and Abram probably said, what did he look like? What does Abram do? He names him exactly what the angel of the Lord said. Now, doesn't mean it was exactly what happened. I'm inferring again, but Abram's faith there, saying, I'm going to name the boy exactly what you told me to, is pretty good. Now, it doesn't turn out well, because the story I've got up here on the screen was really the only one I could find of Hagar, uh, and ultimately she is uh, banished, and she and the boy are banished, and the angel of the Lord comes to him again and takes care of him, but that's a different story. Here it was just a prelude to what's going on. So the note on Abraham is he had faith, even though at that time he did not see God. Now, we're jumping to Genesis 18. This is our second story. Genesis 18 starts, The Lord appeared to Abraham. He's got a new name by, verse, by, by chapter 18 because uh, God comes to him earlier in chapter 17 and says, I'm going to circumcise you. I'm going to give you a new name. You're now a new man. You're now a Hebrew. And uh, you're going to have a great race. So, the Lord appeared, it describes this in Hebrew, as Yahweh appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. And Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. So the picture here is uh, the men standing. Uh, our artist here has them sitting and Abraham standing, but that's why we don't get our theology from the artist. They always get scripture wrong. But I thought it was one of the best ones I could find of the three guys sitting. And we've got this description of some hospitality. And then one of the three speaks. And he says in verse 9, Where is your wife Sarah? They ask him. 
What is significant about that is that this theophany is speaking to him divinely. Now, on your outline, I gave you the big fancy word theophany that is speaking. Theo means God. Phine means appear. And so Theophine, theophany, is God appearing. Some people also call this a Christophany. Same thing. It's God or Christ appearing, and we know he's divine because of what I'm going to describe here. So theophany is God appearing, or Jesus appearing, in the Old Testament before Bethlehem, and he does a couple of things. The first thing he does is he shows, he demonstrates his divine insight. And his divine insight is what I just read you where he says, where is your wife, Sarah? Everybody else that knows them would still call her by her old name. Everybody in the camp, everybody in the city, everybody in the government, everybody would know her by her name for the prior eight decades. She was Sarai, not Sarah. And they would call her by her own old name. So she just got a new name from God in chapter 17. And then all of a sudden, this guy shows up and he says, where is your wife? And he uses her covenant name. Then he says, uh, they're in the tent. Then the Lord, then Yahweh said, okay, so that in verse 10 is our identifier that one of the three guys talking to him is Yahweh. And at this point, this is where I said earlier, there is an inference that Abraham knows who he's talking to. Because at this point, he doesn't freak out. He doesn't quiz him. Scripture doesn't say anything about trying to figure out. Scripture says he knows who he's talking to. Then Yahweh said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. So the second thing he does is he exercises divine prophecy again, and he says, I'm going to give you a son even though she is barren and has been living almost 100 years. You're going to have a son. Now here's where it gets funny. The end of verse 10. Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years. At this point, Abraham is 99 years old. Sarah's probably a spring chicken somewhere in her late 80s or early 90s. And Sarah was past the age of childbearing, it says. So verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself. Okay, didn't laugh out loud. That means Sarah hears this. You're going to have a child with Sarah next year. And inside she's going, bah, that's hilarious. No way. We've been trying for decades and I'm barren. <coughs> Says, so she thought. After I am wor worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Here's how we know he's God. This is our third point of omniscience with this thing called the angel of the Lord. Not just an angel, this fella can read our very thoughts. Verse 13, then Yahweh said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? So he can hear her internal laughter that's not vocalized and it gets even better. And say, 
will I really have a child now that I am old? Now, at that point, Abraham, who did not read her thoughts, has no clue, is probably going, what is he talking about? And Sarah, behind the tent, laughing to herself, suddenly the blood drains out of her face. That dude read my mind. Word for word. <laughs> At this point, she's a believer. And then he says, is anything too hard for the Lord? In your Bible, I've, in my Bible, I've circled too hard. That is a horrible translation. The problem is there's not a better one. Okay? I wrote on your outline, Pela. P-A-L-A. Pela in Hebrew. It's a weird word. It is a word where the word itself means impossible to describe. It's like having a Hebrew word for infinity. Right? If, if we're having math class and I do an I, and you've been through math class, you know what infinity is. It's like too great to wrap our brains around. That's kind of what he's trying to do here. And they came up with the word pela. Is anything pela for the Lord? Is anything way beyond your ability to wrap your brain around for the Lord? In the book of Isaiah, there is a description of the coming Messiah. And it says, his name shall be Pela, wonderful, mighty counselor, king of kings, famous, famous passage. Translates it wonderful is just as horrible of a translation as too hard. But it's Pela. It's a word that doesn't really have a meaning. It's just an, in, an intent to give you the idea of something that is just impossible to wrap your brain around. So it's a good translation to say, is there anything too hard for the Lord? Is there something that you can't wrap your brain around that would be so wonderful if it happens, but you can't figure out how that's remotely possible because of your advanced old age? Is that too hard for the Lord? And then the angel says, I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. We know that's exactly what happened. And when that happened, uh, it is, uh, you know, the start of, of the patriarchs. It is the start of uh, uh, Isaac and Jacob, who we're going to study next week, and it's an amazing story. But before we go on, because from the rest of chapter 19, we get Sodom and Gomorrah. And the third of the three men disappears until the very end of chapter 19. The two guys stay, the two guys stay, and Abraham starts to have a dialogue about, is Yahweh going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Uh, Lot is there. I like Lot. You're going to destroy him. How about save 100? How about save 50? How about save 10? He really just wanted to save one. He wanted to save Lot, and he'd take his wife and the girls, but he's really just wanted one. And so he negotiates with these two guys that it says the men of Sodom and Gomorrah made some unfortunate advances to, and uh, there, then destruction follows. But I put a note at the bottom of your, out, or the, on your outline, a note on Genesis 19.24. And since we're talking about Christ in the Old Testament, i got to stop here for a second. After chapter 18, 
Yahweh reading Sarah's mind, hearing her laugh internally, he steps away. We don't know where he went. We don't know if he just walked down the street. We don't know if he disappears. Scripture doesn't tell us. But there's something cool at the end of 19 that you got to see. Look at 1924. And 1924 is about the destruction. And it says in 1924, Then the Lord, then Yahweh, rained burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the sky. Now, if you read that, it is bad English, but awesome theology. Okay? Because, see, it is describing Yahweh in the Old Testament as having two. Okay? Because it says in verse 24, Then Yahweh rained burning sulfur. So it, it, it implies he's down. He's on the earth. He's controlling the launch coordinates. Okay? He's raining down on one specific point of geography, Sodom and Gomorrah right next to each other. But where is it coming from? Or who's doing it? It says in verse 24, from Yahweh out of the sky. So Yahweh, it's describing as on earth directing the launch coordinates, coming from Yahweh somewhere in the heavens. Now, if you just have an Old Testament perspective, you look at that and go, wow, I don't really understand it. But with a New Testament perspective, you think, I get it. If the second person of the Trinity was there with Abraham in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he stuck around, and there's not forgiveness, there's not repentance, there's just bad stuff going on or trying to be going on with the angels left behind. And then it says he calls down fire and brimstone, and where is it coming from? Yahweh up on high. That's pretty awesome. There's not a description, there's not an explanation, but it is a great picture of a part of the Trinity in Genesis 19.24. So, a brief diversion just to say, wow, that's pretty cool, and then we move on to the better stuff. All right, jump to 22. Once again, we're not doing a study of Abraham. If you want to do that, go to the class website. I've got an old lesson on there uh, that you'll find that'll give you all the chapters and everything that happened. But I want to give you the cool stuff in 22 because in the last 30 minutes we got, this is where it's big. This is the important stuff. Uh, chapter 22 in Genesis. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Uh, first question here, uh, and I don't have a little point here, but you got to make a little notation on his final exam that every profession of faith involves testing. So many people, when stuff goes wrong, get messed up theology and they say, why doesn't God love me? Why doesn't God love me to make this happen? Why doesn't God love me to give me health? Why doesn't God love me to get me this job? Why doesn't God love me to give me a healthy kid? Why doesn't God love me to uh, give me a spouse that acts healthy and normal, right? Whatever the fill in the blank is, they blame God. And the reality is, if God is going to take your profession, your faith, he's going to test it and say, are you here for the goodies or are you here because it's real in your heart? And that requires a testing. Are you coming to God for the goodie bag or are you coming to God because you love him? 
And that's where the test is. All of Abraham's life is a test. This is the final exam. All right, it says, here I am, he replied. Then God said, and once again, you notice here, I'm not saying this is a face-to-face -face with, with the second person of Trinity. God's speaking. He doesn't say in person. It, we don't know if it's a disembodied voice. We're just taking it face value. He can hear God because he answered. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac. Now note at this point, Ishmael is 25 years old. Okay? At this point, Ishmael has had 25 years with Abraham, wonderful fellowship. God says, you're going out. You got to put him away. Abraham's faithful. He puts his uh, first son, Ishmael, away. Isaac then is uh, raised. And God describes your only son, Isaac. That's why I used that phraseology last week. Biblically, Isaac is the only son. Abraham has others. God doesn't recognize them. It says, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the area, your Bible may say region, of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. All right. On your outline, I said the place. You got to know what this is talking about. If you want a cross-reference, the cross-reference is out of Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 3. Second Chronicles chapter 3 tells us Mount Moriah is a hill that David was told by God go build the temple on. Mount Moriah is the temple mount of Jerusalem. Big, big, big deal. So, if you go there today, the uh, uh, mosque that sits on top of it, uh, you and I can't go in. They would kill us. But there are pictures that I've seen that some people have taken like through a keyhole and there are rocks up there that they found whenever in the 7th century the Muslims built uh, the first mosque that was there. And they claim on those rocks is where God had Abraham uh, sacrifice Ishmael is what the Muslims claim, right? They claim that the Jews stole the real story. But nevertheless, they say the rocks that are up there are the rocks where this sacrifice, uh, attempted sacrifice took place. The point is the location is the mountain where the Jewish temple stood for hundreds of years. Very, very, very important. All right. I then say the lad. Because it says in verse 3, early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. I put the lad because that's the word that Genesis uses to describe him. 99% of the art on this event is bad because the art describes him or pictures him as a little boy. In reality, Scripture gives us a chronology. If I had time, I'd piece it together for you. But at this point in time, Abraham is 20, uh, sorry, 120 years old. Not a spring chicken. His boy, Isaac, is 20. He can outrun dad. He can out-wrestle dad. 
He can out everything, Dad. He is a young man. So the Hebrew word lad does not mean just a boy. It's a Hebrew word for any young man who isn't yet married. So you could call a lad at 25, 30, 40. It doesn't matter if they're not married. They're still a lad within the Jewish culture and the Jewish language. So he is a man. And the test is that he's got to sacrifice his son. Now, most people come to this and they go, that sounds pretty barbaric. What's going on? Remember that within Abraham's theology and the theology going all the way back to Adam and Eve, there was a knowledge that the wages of sin are death. Okay? For us, that's Romans. Romans chapter 3. For them, it didn't necessarily have a scriptural reference, but that was a truism. And the conflict with Cain and Abel was, how are you going to deal with that? You're going to do a sacrifice like God tells you to do, or are you just going to bring some offering and say, God, here's what I'm going to do to pacify the wages of sin being death? And you know how that story ended out. And so we see with Noah on the ark, they hit dry land, there's worship, there's a sacrifice, there's a burnt offering. And so this system that we will see developed more in the book of Leviticus, they were already practicing. So the wages of sin are death, and the only way to get to, to, to satisfy the sin of death temporarily was to have a sacrificial system. And so God says, Abraham, your sin, your boy's sin, requires his life. It requires the life of the only begotten son. That's the test. It is a picture that your sin is so bad, the sacrifice that it requires is so ultimate that it requires the sacrifice of the only begotten son. So, the faithfulness of Abraham then is what happens because in verse 4 it says on the third day he looked up and saw the place in the distance. That has got to be the longest three days anybody ever went through because it's a three-day journey from where they were living to what Mount, where Mount Moriah is, modern-day Jerusalem. And those walks must have been him thinking this is the third to the last day I might be spending with my boy this is the second to last day. I might be spending with my boy. I got faith, but I sure am uncertain how God's going to work this out. I'm not sure how he's going to work it out. God, I'm praying to you. So there's a whole lot of consternation going on. As Satan inevitably would have been tormenting Abraham, as Satan would have been testing Abraham, don't have faith. A God that loves you would not do this. A God that loves you would not have you sacrifice back to him something that you treasure higher than anything else in the world. Satan would have had him going crazy on that three-day walk as he is trying to be faithful. And then his faithfulness shows up in verse 5. He says to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the lad, that's any man who's not married, go over there, notice the pronouns. We will worship, then we will come back to you. Circle both of the weeds. That's him saying, Satan, in your face. I don't know how, but I'm going to sacrifice the only begotten son, and God is going to raise him from the dead.
it is not only a belief that the word of God is true and ought to be followed, it is a belief that God restores dead people to life. It is the greatest theological pronouncement at this point in your Bible. From Genesis 1 to this point, that sentence right there, we will worship and we will come back, is the single greatest theological statement because the inference is the God I'm following to do this has the power to bring a dead man back to life. That is unbelievable theology. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire, in other words, the stick, the torch, and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Yes, my son Abraham replied, The wood and the fire are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? All right. The key point here is I taught you last week the idea of, or sorry, two weeks ago with the ark, the idea of typology, of pictures. And I told you that everything in the Old Testament, everything, every chapter, has in it a picture that somehow deals with Jesus Christ. Some are about his person. Some are about why he had to come because of our sinful nature. Some are about how we try to get to him that's a miserable failure. Some is how he said we had to get to him before he came at Bethlehem. Some is a picture of heaven with him. There's all kinds of different things we're going to study. Don't miss this picture. Because the picture is probably the greatest picture we get of the coming Messiah until we get to Joseph in two weeks. And that's going to knock your socks off. But this picture is the only begotten son, obedient to the point of death, walking up a hill outside of Jerusalem, going to die a miserable death, obediently, because Isaac was big enough to run. Isaac was big enough to say, Dad, the heck with you. I got plans, buddy. He is the only begotten son who knew God because of daddy, who knew the promises of God, the covenant, because of daddy. We don't know what this guy's schooling at home was like. We don't know what his church was like, but this boy is obedient to the point of death. Not supposed to miss the picture. It is an incredible picture of what ultimately Christ would do walking up a hill. He's carrying the wood. Isaac, it says, has got Abraham placed the wood on his son. Just like God placed the wood on Christ's back as he carried it down the Via Dolorosa to Calvary. Incredible imagery. Then Abraham, or the, then Isaac says, where is the lamb? Great little point here, cross-reference of uh, the Gospel of John. Because in the Gospel of John, it says in chapter 2, when it introduces him, as soon as he comes up from the baptism... John says, there's the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God. There's a connection here between the two. So Isaac's looking for the Lamb. The Lamb finally comes, John chapter 2, but it's a great picture. When they re Verse 9, when they reached the place God had told him about, in other words, on top of Mount Moriah, Abram built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. 
he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. So Isaac, at 20 years old, is submitting willfully to the sacrifice. So it's not just Abraham's sacrifice. It's Isaac, the only begotten son, sacrificing himself. It's a double sacrifice here. Verse 10. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Here's where it's important. Verse 11, look who's here again. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here am I, replied, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now that I know you fear God, because I know you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Verse 13, Abraham, Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So our little description there of the angel of the Lord gives us a couple of little points about this angel. Number one. He's in heaven. We saw in chapter 16 and 18, he can also be here down on the earth, but he can also be up in heaven and call. So the fact it identifies him as the angel of the Lord, as opposed to any other description, is showing the personality. As soon as Abraham hears this voice, he's not saying, who's that? As soon as he hears the voice, he's like, hey, you're back. Okay, I'm not swinging the knife. Right? It's, it's recognition. It's the voice of the man whose voice he recognizes from having already met him. So it's from heaven and it's instant recognition. Number two, it is a God that knows his heart. He knows his mind. He knows his heart, just like Sarah back in the tent when, when uh, she couldn't be seen by men. God knows that she's laughing to herself. She's thinking to herself verbatim. He knows what's going on. And here he knows his heart. He says, I know in verse 12, you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. The third point is God's timing. The angel of the Lord controls God's timing. Because we see in verse 14, Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. He could have provided on day one on the way to Mount Moriah. Could have provided on day two. Could have provided on the morning of day three. Could have provided on the way on the hike up to the hill. Could have provided while they're wrapping up Isaac in the ropes could have provided when Isaac is looking at dad going, what's going to happen, dad? Right? He waits till the knife is in the air. Last week, I gave you Hebrews chapter 11. Write it down because on your outline, I've got, no, oh, I don't have. I, I meant to have. Oh, back up above. Back, I, I put it in the wrong order. Uh, back up above under how, I gave you Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. I showed it to you this week. I forgot to put it up on the screen. You can look it up later if you forgot it. Hebrews 11 gives us the insight onto this verse. And it says in reference to this verse that God reckoned it to him as righteousness because he believed God could raise a man from the dead. Hebrews gives us the New Testament perspective on this story and Abraham's mind 
because Genesis doesn't tell us he believed God could raise a dead man. Hebrews tells us he's in heaven because he believed God could raise a dead man. Now, the other cross-reference here that's really important is because of what happened in that verse I showed you about seeing the day of the Lord when Jesus said in John chapter 8, Abraham saw my day. That's where we are right here in this story. I gave you the first part. The angel of the Lord speaks a second time. On your outline, I said the angel of the Lord returns, and then I gave you a couple of little bullet points where I gave you other passages of Scripture that we're going to study primarily when we get to Judges. The book of the Bible that has the most appearances of the angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, is the book of Judges. We're going to work through every single one of those in about six weeks, and it's going to be a great little study. But just so that you can get a bigger picture, this issue of the angel of the Lord I put there. I could have moved it up a section. I'm not sure why I put it there. It's just what happens when I work late at night, but that's where you got it. So if you want in your quiet time this week, look them all up. You can get a six-week preview on where we're going in the class. But all those things about the angel of the Lord show it's a masculine pronoun. He's identified as God. He performs miracles. Uh, people think they're going to die because they've seen him. The same reaction when people see, think they, uh, when they encounter an angel, they think is God. Uh, the angel actually foretells future events. His name is Pela. It's wonderful. He's specifically given that name in Judges 13. He has the ability or power over life and death. Uh, in a single instant, he kills uh, 185,000 people, and then the angel of the Lord never, ever appears again after Matthew 1, Mark 1, Luke 1, or John 1. You never see the angel again. He's in the Old Testament, but as of Bethlehem, there's no need for the angel of the Lord because Jesus Christ is incarnate. All right. The angel of the Lord returns, and his second message is in verse 15. The angel of the Lord called Abraham from, from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares Yahweh, that because you've done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities and their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on the earth will be blessed. Exact same thing he said back in Genesis 15, because you have obeyed me. All right, the second, or the things we learn from the second appearance or, or speaking of the angel of the Lord. Number one, divine oaths. The angel of the Lord repeats the word of Yahweh, not saying Yahweh said, but the angel says, notice the pronouns, I swear by myself. Once again, if this is just an angel, if this is a created being of God, that is the most blasphemous statement ever uttered in creation, and the angel deserves to be in the pit of hell. The only way out is, that's God. That's the second person of the Trinity. So he says, I swear by myself. And then the second thing we learn is it's once again divine prophecy. He says, you're going to have incredible blessing, and it's going to take place. And you're going to have more descendants than you can imagine, even though you've just got one child at this point in your life. The third point I want to make on our angel of the Lord here is it is intimately 
personal. Everything in all of this uh, uh, passage, verses 10 through 14 and then 15 through 19, are all about exactly what Abraham did. The angel of the Lord, as God, knows his heart, knows every step, knows every action, knows everything he's doing, and cares about it as intimately as anyone could possibly imagine. He knows his fear. He knows his temptation from Satan. He knows his weakness. He knows his prayer, God, take me out of this, and he did not take him out of it until the very, 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 very end. He knew everything about him as intimately as we could possibly imagine and is intended to be a picture of how intimate and how close God is. In this big world, in this big universe with so many billions of people on it, it's easy to think God's missing me. And the reason the New Testament describes him as our spiritual father because he's the picture of the intimacy that we have. My fears, your fears, my consternation, my paranoia, my exhaustion, my everything else that you and I both share, this is a picture of God is with us every step of the way. And when he chooses in his timing to intervene, it's going to knock our socks off, but our, our command is to be faithful because remember the promise as we talked about last week wasn't fulfilled in his lifetime. He didn't see all the descendants from the only begotten son. He didn't see the land. He didn't see the nations. He didn't see a group of people like the stars in the sky. He died in faith because he had a little nugget of God's promise and everything else was all a matter of faith. There is a great application here. And the great application in our conclusion is a question. And the question is, what are you laying on God's altar? Remember I told you we've all got a test. Every one of us, if you've made a profession of faith, you've got a test. And the part of sanctification of being more Christ-like is what is us and not Christ has to go away. And the consciousness that comes with our profession of faith, I'm going to be a child of God, means i got to lay stuff on his altar. Now, my story here is pretty poignant because my story, as I've told most of y'all before, involves my law firm and my law degree and me going through my early adult life with my fingers in my ears saying, don't take away my law firm, don't take away my law degree, I don't want to be a preacher, I don't want to be a missionary. And at my grandfather's funeral, my father's father's funeral, I prayed, God, you want my law firm? You can have it. God, you want my law license? You can have it. I had an experience just like Abraham and just like Isaac. I laid it on the altar. And what he wanted was the laying on the altar. He didn't want the death of what I laid on the altar. And for a lot of you, it may be a job. For a lot of you, it may be a child that you just want to hold tight and never let go. For some of you, it may be your health. For some of you, it may be your investment account. For some of you, it may be something else that's just really important to you, your health, all kinds of stuff. For all of us, we're different. For me, it was my law firm because that was my identity and my law license was my ability to take care of my family. 
And until I laid it down, I never had an open door of what God wanted me to do. See, if somebody had come to me and said, Chris, would you teach a class? I would have been happy to say, yeah, I've been in church since I was an infant. In fact, I was in church neonatal every Sunday. That door never got opened. Never, ever, ever got opened until I laid my sacrifice on God's altar and said, God, here it is. Now you show me what you want to do. So as you guys leave today, the question is, what's your sacrifice on God's altar? Because he wants one from all of us if we're truly going to become Christ-like. Now you understand why that's such an intimidating lesson. That's big stuff, folks. Next week, Jacob, he's my favorite guy in all of Genesis because he's the guy most like me. And I got a feeling he's going to be just like you. Mr. Fincher, real quick. Yep. My understanding is all sacrifices, uh, the sacrifice system happened at the temple. There weren't satellites. Correct, correct. How did we go from the Mount Moriah to Egypt and have a 400-year gap? And I'm assuming that Moses didn't lead them back and say, here's the place to start. No, because the tabernacle, God gave special dispensation, and the tabernacle was wherever the tabernacle was. How did they find their way back to Mount Moriah? David. David has a dream and a word from God saying the tabernacle's been all over the place. Now it's going on Mount Moriah. So when they built the actual temple, God said, go put it there because it's permanent. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. We're doing we're doing three weeks on David. Mr. Benjamin. Just an interesting typology not to be missed. The first time the word lamb appears in the Old Testament is in Genesis 22 in the form of a question. Father, I behold... The wood and father I behold the fire from fire, where is the land? The first time he appears in the New Testament is when John the Baptist sees him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. There he is. Who takes away the sin, not of Israel, but the world. Yep. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this awesome lesson from this incredibly important chapter, and we pray that this week you would challenge us and hear our prayer and answer our prayer on what is our sacrifice to you on your altar. And it's hard. It requires conviction. It requires courage. It requires strength. And we just thank you for being a God that loves us enough to know what's best for us and wants us to shield or to throw away our self-centeredness and our childishness to become more Christ-like by sacrificing that which we hold because we're so childlike and just turn it over to you and say, we love you, God, and we trust you. We pray that you'd be with us until we're back here together again next week. We ask all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank you all. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.